Hello and welcome to Plymouth Beneath the Surface, where we will meet inspiring people from Plymouth that have oriented their lives and careers around the ocean. Are you ready to dive into Plymouth waters to explore career options, discover underwater ecosystems, understand marine research and conservation initiatives? I'm your host, Ruzo Sian, a final year student in marine biology at the University of Plymouth. I'm really grateful to have you here today and I hope you enjoy this dose of inspiration in this new episode. So welcome to this new episode of Primitive Beneath the Surface podcast um, with Dan Smale. Welcome Dan. And can I ask you to introduce yourself please? Yeah, I'm Dan Smale. I'm a research fellow at the Marine Biological Association in Plymouth. So you're the first researcher I've got on the show that is from the MBA. Can you tell us a bit more about what the MBA is? Yeah, the MBA is a relatively small research organisation that was set up in the late 1800s. So it's been conducting marine biology for over 130 years now. It's associated with universities, but it's an independent research organisation. And we do fundamental research into the biology of lots of different marine organisms from viruses through to seaweeds, through to fish, through to basking sharks and other higher organisms. And we also have a strong focus on education in marine biology. We have um, a global membership of people that subscribe to the MBA and we have a a role in education and policy making in the UK and also worldwide. And what is your group focusing on? My group primarily focuses on kelp forest ecology. So I have a background in studying kelp forest ecosystems uh, around the world. And in the last five to six years, we've really been focusing on trying to understand how kelp forests around the UK and in Europe more broadly function and how they're being impacted by various stresses and changes, such as ocean warming or changes in uh, harvesting practices or changes in water quality, for example. Um, But we also work more generally on climate change impacts. So one member of my team is currently doing a a large analysis to work out how marine heat waves, short-term extreme warming events, actually affect marine ecosystems around the world. So we we focus locally on kelp forests um, and and other coastal systems, but we also have like a broader remit to look at climate change impacts across the world. Are kelp forests really impacted by climate change? So it really depends where you look. Some kelp forests are really affected by increasing temperature. Those that are found towards their upper thermal limits anyway, at the edges of their ranges, at their species distributions, they are really impacted by ocean warming. For example, I did my postdoc in Western Australia, and that's quite a warm temperate system, and they've experienced really rapid warming over the last sort of 20 to 30 years. But in particular, a very intense marine heat wave impacted Western Australia in 2011, and that really impacted kelp forests along hundreds of kilometres of coastline in Western Australia. And so these lush, diverse, highly productive kelp forests were, were lost within a matter of months and years. Um, But then on the other hand, some kelp systems are incredibly stable over really long periods of time. And we know that, particularly from the UK, where we have some historical data that we can look at and compare to see if there's been any changes. Some systems, such as those around Northern Scotland, seem to be really quite stable and have supported fisheries and biodiversity, carbon through their high levels of primary production, in, in fairly comparable and similar ways for the last well, 100 years or, or maybe more. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but essentially 
kelps themselves are influenced strongly by ocean temperature, but obviously the effects of ocean climate change will depend on, on, on which kelp populations you look at and where they're located in the world. How many species of kelp do we have in Plymouth or in the southwest? So we have seven different kelp species that can coexist and each of those may be dominant under different environmental conditions. So where we have open wave exposed coastline like you know like uh, on, on Rainhead or, or on the open wave exposed south coast and north coast you tend to have domination by Laminaria hyperbrea or Laminaria digitata and intertidal. But then as you go into more wave sheltered areas, other species such as the sugar kelp, Saccharina latissima tend to dominate. And then we also have a non-native invasive species, um, which is called wakami or Adaria, and that can pop up in more disturbed places. It's quite an interesting system to, to, to try and test some quite broad ecological questions. It's like a, I always say Plymouth Sound is like an ecologist playground because we have the coexistence of climate change winners because there are some warm adapted species, climate change losers, which we know are declining in abundance in response to warming, and then also this global invasive species as well. So they, all seven species have quite different life history traits uh, and, and sort of evo-ecological contexts. And so it's kind of a, a nice place to try and understand the wider implications of, of global change. So do you get to go diving a lot in kelp forest in, during your work? Yeah, so for this UK-wide kelp project, we've done a lot of scientific diving because that's really the only way we can access these subtidal forests. And we need to be able to, to work in, in these subtidal kelp habitats to really understand how much biodiversity they support, uh, how quickly they grow in terms of you know, primary production and carbon storage and transfer, how the structure of these kelp forests may change with temperature and, and other, other, other factors such as wave exposure. So we've spent hundreds of hours diving around the UK in the last five to six years trying to get some basic information on, on the structure of these habitats and, and trying to understand how they work and how they may respond to future change. And we've, able, we've been able to spend so much time in the water because the project was partly funded by a national facility for scientific diving they were based up in Oban in Scotland and they provided logistical support for most of our work. They have you know, a small team of really experienced diving technicians and they were able to come and help us on some of our science dives. But primarily the work was done by myself and my key collaborator, Professor Pippa Moore, who was at Aberystwyth and is now at Newcastle University. And the two of us decided way back in 2014, I think, to to kind of bring our resources and our groups together to try and tackle this sort of UK-wide kelp forest project. Uh, and it's been really fun and really productive um, over the past few years. And as I say, lots of people have been involved and we've spent a lot of time in the field trying to get some of this information. And we, we did it initially because both of us actually did our postdocs in Australia and then came back to the UK at a similar time. And we realised that compared to Australia and also the States, the United States, we really knew almost nothing about our kelp forests around the UK, even though they were deemed to be really important habitats. We didn't have basic information on, on their structure and their diversity and the way they work or even where they were. So we thought it was pretty important that, that, that we try to address some of the, the fundamental knowledge gaps because if you don't understand how these ecosystems work, then they're going to be really, really hard to, to manage and to protect and to conserve and to continue to, 
to, to, to enjoy the ecosystem services that they provide to, to sort of coastal human societies as well. So you're saying they're really important systems. Can you explain why? Sure. Well, first of all, kelp forests are extremely widely distributed around the world. So not a lot of people realise, but kelps are found across around 20 to 25% of the global coastline. So in most sort of temperate and cold coastlines, so around the sort of Canadian Arctic, Southern America, Australasia, Northern Europe, a lot of those coastlines are dominated by kelp forests. And they're far more extensive than, say, seagrass beds or, or even coral reefs. Uh, and what they do, they do a number of things. First of all, kelps grow really, really quickly. They're one of the fastest growing primary producers on, on planet Earth. You know, they grow as, as fast as lots of terrestrial plants or much faster. And what they do is they, they suck up lots of carbon and then they fix it into organic matter. And then that provides food for lots of species that live within the kelp forest themselves, but also lots of organisms that live away from the kelp forest that are able to consume the detritus that the kelp produces and then is exported from the kelp habitat itself. So it's a really important building block of coastal food webs. It provides the energy for a lot of a lot of these uh, lower trophic organisms that then provide food for higher organisms like fish and, and lobsters and seabirds. So it's a fund- fundamental building block of a food web. The kelps also function as foundation species. So what I mean by that is they provide habitat for lots and lots of other different organisms. So a bit like a tree in a terrestrial forest provides biogenic physical structure for other things to live on, kelps do exactly the same role in shallow water temperate ecosystems. So they provide a large area for colonisation by a whole bunch of marine organisms, things like sponges, anemones, polychaete worms, amphipods, lots and lots of different critters use the kelps directly for habitat and as I said those organisms are really important for the wider food web as well and so we wouldn't have productive inshore fisheries things like uh, you know crab potting industry is really important relies on kelp forest productivity Uh, and also inshore fisheries things like pollock is really important nursery ground so all of these things are, are just fundamental building blocks of the entire ecosystem and then also that's not just what kelps do that's not just why they're important they protect the shoreline from increased coastal erosion because they essentially form a barrier against really extreme wave action and do to some extent dampen wave energy as these large storms hit the coast and so they do offer some protection against coastal erosion they're really important in nutrient cycling and altogether they just serve the same function as corals do in, in, in tropical areas and seagrasses do in more sort of sheltered environments. They're a bit the trees of like the ocean you could say. Absolutely yeah and I think this term marine forests is starting to catch on and I think it's it's quite a useful way of conveying their role and their importance really. I mean obviously there would if you had lots of cold temperate reef there would still be things living on it but if you if you have an extensive kelp forest then the overall biodiversity of that area is going to be higher and the overall primary productivity the amount of energy that's captured and then transferred is going to be much much higher as well. Are they harvested in the UK or in Europe? So kelps are harvested in Norway and in France currently yes primarily for the alginate that they have but also from other compounds that they contain. So alginate is used, as you know, in tons and tons of different products, cosmetics, food, supplements, lots of different things. So there is a market for alginate from kelps and they are harvested and have been for a few decades in both France and Norway. 
Currently, there is no harvesting of wild kelp populations in the UK, although a couple of years ago, a company put in a proposal to start wild harvesting in West Scotland. And that proposal was met with a lot of resistance from local campaign groups and also from several scientists. And so my understanding is that that has currently been banned under the Crown State Bill in Scotland. So for now, wild kelp harvesting won't happen in the UK, but there is an ongoing review process to see whether whether it can be done sustainably and whether that's, that's the kind of activity that Scottish Government wants to pursue. We hear more and more about blue carbon. What do you think is the role of kelp forest in this? So blue carbon refers to the ability of natural ecosystems to store carbon for meaningful timescales. And certainly habitats like seagrass meadows and salt marshes and mangroves in tropical areas are really, really important as blue carbon storage habitats. Kelp forests don't store carbon directly because they don't have any way of burying carbon within the kelp forest. So they grow on rocky reefs, they don't have a root system, they don't actually bury any carbon. But what they do do is produce an enormous amount of organic matter which is released as detritus, like similar to leaf litter from trees on land. And what we don't really understand is where all that carbon in the detritus actually ends up and whether it stays in marine habitats for a long period of time. So this is very much like cutting edge research in in sort of kelp research globally, is to try and understand, first of all, how much carbon is released as kelp detritus, but then importantly, how far it's transported and whether any of it, and we know that some of it definitely does, but what fraction of it ends up in long-term storage habitats. So if it gets trapped in, say, a seagrass meadow, then eventually that kelp detritus could get buried and and over time it will go deeper and deeper and deeper. And so that kelp carbon, especially if it gets into the anoxic layer of the sediment, could stay there for tens, hundreds, thousands of years potentially. Similarly, if a lot of the detritus gets exported a really long way offshore by tides and, and wind and then sort of sinks into the deep sea or deeper oceans, then it may sink and then also become sort of trapped either in the deeper layers of, of the water column or actually within the sediments itself and again get buried for meaningful timescales. So there's a lot of talk around kelps and how they may be really important for blue carbon services but we really don't know at this stage how much of kelp carbon is actually stored for what we'd call meaningful timescales. And when I say that it needs to be kept within the system for hundreds of years if it's going to have any meaningful role in mitigation against anthropogenic climate change. If the kelp detritus is just remineralized by bacteria or fungi or detritivores within the space of months or years, then that CO2 is then just instantly released through the water column back into the atmosphere. So it doesn't really make an important contribution. But what our groups our groups involved in a, an international collaboration, a network of scientists around the world that are trying to get a better handle on how much kelp carbon may be stored for long periods of time. And we can use things like eDNA markers in the sediments to try and work out how much seaweed DNA is actually in seagrass meadows or offshore sediments and try and get a handle on whether this is an important process. And if it is, then maybe you can you can protect these kelp forests and they should be conserved not only for their role in fisheries habitats and, and, and for promoting and sustaining biodiversity, but also for their role in in producing and releasing this carbon that that serves um, as part of natural carbon sequestration or blue carbon services. There are some restoration projects around the world that are actively planting, replanting kelps and other large seaweeds into areas where they've been lost. 
so that they can restore both the habitat but also the carbon that they lock up and also that they sort of transfer to other systems. So and and the kelps themselves, you know, they they do they do store some carbon because, you know, if the car if the kelps weren't there, if you had a large area of rocky reef that was suddenly deforested and didn't have any kelps, then obviously all that standing stock of carbon that was there would be lost. It's just they don't bury that carbon for any long period of time. One of the ways just to also reduce climate change without always thinking that, you know, there's a system that's going to take it anyway. Yeah, and people are starting to come up with quite crazy, innovative ways of trying to harness all this this really high rates of primary production from seaweeds and try and get them to to capture all this carbon, but then somehow put the carbon somewhere, whether it's in the deep sea or lock it up somewhere or use it for something. So the kelps would be part of this sort of natural process of trying to capture and lock up the carbon. I think some of it's uh, quite science fiction for now, but there are some really interesting ideas out there being backed by some big investors that see this as a potential way of, 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 of climate change mitigation to some, to some extent. Similarly with um, kelp farming or seaweed cultivation in general, obviously if you've got large extensive kelp farms or seaweed farms like there are in some regions, then those farms are constantly sucking up lots of carbon. And if some of that carbon is released and ends up in a storage habitat, then that's probably another useful way to contribute to blue carbon services. Can you eat kelp? You can. Yes. Uh, I I have, but I'm personally not a, a massive fan, but lots of people do eat kelps and other seaweeds. I think they're sort of emerging as like a superfood, you know, they're high in various uh, minerals and vitamins and really good for you, particularly high in iodine and lots of vitamins. And so people are starting to use it on their salads or in their spaghetti as, as a superfood. And I think I think that market, market is definitely growing quite quickly uh, in the UK and, and wider Europe. Someone one day told me you should try the species you study. You should eat the species uh-huh. you study. There's yeah. like a thing. So whatever you study, you should try it. Yeah, I've heard that as well. <laughs> Kelp is not too bad, I guess. No, it's not too bad. No, no. And I think, um, yeah, lots of my group in the past have, have eaten it. So when you did that study uh, of kelp forests around the UK, mm-hmm. where has been like your favourite spot to be diving in? Oh, that's easy. So we have our, our most northern site is in Orkney, the Orkney Isles, just off the north coast of Scotland. And amazing place to visit anyway, quite unique, and it's always a joy to go and, and work there for a week or two. But the um, the diving off the west coast of the mainland of Orkney is incredible. The, visib- the visibility is always really, really good. And the kelps themselves are huge, they're massive because the growing conditions are perfect, just the right temperature, loads of light. And because it's quite remote, it feels like they're more pristine than some of the other places we work and there's always tons of fish and loads of crabs around and the, like I say the visibility is always at least 10 meters but sometimes much more and it's just an absolute it's always a joy to go to Orkney and visit our long-term study sites and just get in the water and spend some time there although it can get cold I remember in 2015 we tried to do three rounds of field trips in a single year and each round of field work for this project involves doing a week's work at each of our four main regions, so North Scotland, West Scotland, South West Wales and South West England near Plymouth. And each of those places takes a week, so one round of field work is four weeks, basically a month. And we tried to do three rounds in one year, and I remember going to up to Oban and then Orkney in March 
2015 and there was loads of snow on the hills and it was so so cold and the water I think was it got six or seven degrees and we had to do three dives a day and so I remember sort of losing the will to live after a couple of days and just being so so cold um, and just barely being able to to use my hands to to put a cable tie around a kelp or to you know tie some kelp and put it onto a line to bring it back to the surface I remember diving in March in Oban and Orkney in Scotland was was pretty cold, pretty challenging. I bet. So did you say you went on the west coast? We can't find any kelp on the east coast of the UK? There's far less on the east coast. Well, in the northeast, sort of around um, Northumbria and Newcastle, there's lots of rocky coastline and there's tons of kelp forests along that bit. But as you come further south to the east coast, it becomes more and more sandy sediment habitat and less and less rocky reef. So you don't really get extensive kelp forests like you do on the west and north coast of the UK. Yeah, how deep can the forest be? Yeah, obviously it depends how clear the water is and, and how how deep the light can penetrate because they need the light to photosynthesize, of course. But in really clear water around, say, the north coast of Scotland, we were recording kelps at sort of 25 to 30 metres deep. Wow. Uh, and I think there is a record from one of the offshore islands, maybe the Outer Hebrides, of 40 to 45 metres depth is sort of maximum depth limit of a kelp plant. So they can extend into fairly deep waters. And how tall do they get? Yeah, so individual plants of, of Laminaria hyperbrea, which is the main kelp that we've been working on, can be over two, two and a half metres in height. So the stipes would be two, two and a half metres, which is it's, it's, it's quite big for uh, European kelps, but it's not anywhere near you know the maximum of any sort of global species. For example, in South Africa, there's a Clonia maxima, and that can be 20, 30 metres high. And same with giant kelp macrocystis in California, that could be sort of 20, 30 metres high. But even so, it's big enough that you can get underneath the kelp canopy when you're diving, and you can feel like you're, you're in a forest habitat. You can sort of swim in between the stipes, and it's all shaded by the kelp canopy, and it's quite dark and gloomy but like full of life under there so it does feel like walking through I don't know like an oak forest on Dartmoor or something one of those old forests and is there a really good spot around the southwest or around Plymouth to go and find a really nice kelp forest yeah so I think maybe I'm biased here because I'm from Plymouth originally and spent my teenage years snorkeling around the south coast of Devon but there's some really lovely kelp forests around Plymouth and, and Devon and Cornwall more generally. Specifically, I think it depends if you've got access to a boat because there's some really nice offshore, offshore reefs like Hands Deep and the Edison uh, Reef Complex, which are about nine miles offshore. There's some amazing, really extensive sort of reefy forest habitats out there. But obviously not everybody can access them. They're really hard to get out to. But even sort of locally around Plymouth Sound, like off Haybrook Bay and around sort of Wembury and, uh, and across to, to Nos Mayo, there's some really nice, quite extensive kelp forests. The kelp plants themselves don't get as big as they do in Scotland. You know, they're only going to be, I don't know, one, one and a half metres high maybe. But um, they still form really nice habitat for, for snorkeling, for free diving and, uh, and for scuba diving. So how was, like, what was your path? Uh, my path, okay. Um, so... Yeah, I grew up in just Plimpton, just a suburb of Plymouth, and uh, not really anyone from my family had been to university or anything before, so it wasn't really obvious. I didn't know that you could have a career in marine biology. I mean, I didn't even know that was a thing. 
but I was pretty good academically and got some good exam grades, I suppose. And then my family were like, well, you should go and do, I don't know, medicine, be a doctor or go and be a lawyer or something. And because I guess they and I didn't realise that there were other options and that even within the university in the same city, you can do a whole degree in marine biology. And at the same time, I was really into sort of free diving and snorkeling and surfing around the coast. So I had a real love for the ocean, but I didn't realise that you could study that for a degree. And then I basically did my work experience in, in high school at a hospital and hated it. Like it was just the worst five days of my life. And I went back to my teacher in high school and said, I can't do this. And she was like, OK, um, there's this opportunity to do a work experience placement at the Marine Biological Association. No way. <laughs> and so I was like, OK, yeah, that sounds fun. So I remember coming here when I was about 16, 17 or something, working in the aquarium facility downstairs in the seawater hall, just cleaning out tanks and doing, doing whatever work was going. And I loved it. I thought, this is amazing. I didn't know that people could do this. So then I decided to apply to do marine biology at Plymouth started the course in the year 2000 and just absolutely loved it loved everything about it um we got to do our hsc scuba diving course so every monday we'd go down to the cockside diving center and go out on the boats and and learn how to scuba dive which was something i'd always wanted to do and never managed to do and then just the whole course was really great uh, and i really fell in love with the whole ecology of temperate ecosystems really and had some really good lecturers at plymouth that talked a lot about not just kelp forest ecology, but just marine ecology in general. And I really sort of fell in love with all that. And then managed to graduate with the first in 2003. And then again, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Applied for quite a few PhDs, didn't get them. And then through a random series of events, got offered to do a PhD with the British Antarctic Survey. Uh, so then joined Bass and moved to Rothera Research Station on the Antarctic Peninsula mm. to do my PhD. And so I ended up staying at Rothera for two and a half years, continuously. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. You didn't come back to Europe? No, I didn't, didn't leave the research station, really. Um, because you did not want to? No, we, that was, so back then the, the role was, um, the position was two and a half years in Antarctica to do field work and collect data, and then two years back in Cambridge to write up. So that was just what we signed up for. And the marine biologist position was always two and a half years. Now it's 18 months, but back then it was two winters so that you had enough time to get enough data. So I remember getting on a, getting on a plane, saying goodbye to my parents and my friends when I was 22. And I didn't see any of them again until I was nearly 25. So it's quite a long period of time to be stuck on a research station in Antarctica with, in Antarctica <laughs> with some random people that you don't really know. But it was incredible. It was the most amazing experience of my life and it worked out really well. You know, some bits were hard, but overall it was really positive experience. And I loved it. And so my PhD was about how, um, how icebergs scour the seabed and then uh, basically they, they cause a massive disturbance event cause lots of mortality to species living on the seabed and then my PhD was trying to work out how quickly the organisms come into that area that's been disturbed and how quickly they recover following iceberg scouring so there was a lot of scuba diving we used to go wait for an iceberg to ground out somewhere near the base and then go out on the boat fix it with the GPS wait for the winds and the tides to change and then it would sort of go off again float off away and then go down and mark out the area of the seabed that had been impacted by the by the iceberg. Then take some quadrats and cores and photos, 
and then do that over time for like two and a half years or up to five years, we monitored some of them, and then try and work out how quickly these, these little benthic communities recover following this catastrophic disturbance. It was a really interesting question, and it had sort of wider significance as well because the Antarctic Peninsula has warmed really quickly over the last few decades. And as it's warmed, lots of the glaciers on the coastline have retreated and they've pumped more ice into the coastal waters. And those icebergs float around more. And they're also float around for more of the year because the sea ice that normally traps them into position and locks them into position for most of the winter, the sea ice season is getting shorter and shorter and shorter because of warming. So not only is there more ice dumped into coastal waters, the icebergs are moving around for more of the year. So we're trying to really understand with this increased physical disturbance, how that may affect these coastal communities and ecosystems. It's a really interesting question. And uh, I was lucky enough to spend like five years working on that. So then finished my PhD at Bass and then moved to Western Australia, to the University of Western Australia to do a postdoc. Spent four years out there working on kelp forest systems, but also coral reef systems, because the West Coast of Australia is a really interesting region where you have this mix of, of sort of cold, temperate, kelp-dominated system and then a warm, subtropical, coral-dominated system. And you have this sort of mixed zone in the middle where you have both kind of habitats. So it's trying to work out how to manage those and how they might be impacted by ocean warming. So I spent four years out there and then was lucky enough to get a Marie Curie Fellowship, which brought me actually back to the, well, to the MBA for the first time as a scientist. But like... I don't know, 20 years or whatever after I first came here to do work experience. So yeah, and I've been here since I think 2012. I came back on a fellowship and now I've managed to get more funding and sort of grow the group and and start to look at kelp forest ecology in the UK, uh, as well as, as I said, more general sort of climate change questions. And how many people do you have in your group working with you? Currently, there's... Uh, nine, I guess. Not all of them are full-time within our group, but uh, there's a mixture of some postdoc researchers, some research assistants, and then uh, two full-time PhD students and another two that I co-supervise that come in and work here from time to time. And it's really great. They're all you know really amazing people, but the projects are really quite diverse as well. You know, One student's working on seagrass, another on kelp farming, another on global marine heatwave impacts. So there's quite a, a range of subjects and themes that these that we're trying to tackle really within this within this overarching question of how rapid environmental change affects coastal marine ecosystems. We want to know that because you can't do anything about improving management or conservation going forward if you don't know how these systems work fundamentally and how they're responding to these stresses, these changes, things like ocean warming, but also as I said, changes in coastal water quality, the spread of non-native species, uh, harvesting pressure, fishing pressure, all these different things that interact to to shape these ecosystems. So why do you think you chose to do a career like that? Like what's driving you today to go to work? So if you asked me this five or ten years ago, I would say I'm doing this because marine biology is such a great job and I get to travel the world and I get to go scuba diving and I get to study the systems that interest me. And that's still the case now, but that was really the focus when I sort of first started out and had a real ambition and drive to try and be a marine biologist. It was kind of almost 
self not self-centered but you know you want to do a job that interests you if you're going to do something five days a week whatever you know so I, I did it because it was so exciting and interesting and something I wanted to do I think in the last few years the reasons have changed a little in that what I want to make I want to have more of an impact on how we can conserve these systems going forward and I also want to have more of an impact in terms of mentoring some of the younger scientists that are coming through the system and support them so that they can go off and have careers and make an impact in their own way as well. So I think maybe with the years I'm coming less <laughs> self-centred and slightly more, I don't know, yeah, just the wider ambitions and goals really. Most of the listeners are pretty students, so maybe once I want to study or are doing their degree, and probably most of them want to pursue a career in marine science, if you had one tip or one piece of advice for them what would it be i would say that i would i would be honest and i'd say look marine biology is a really competitive world lots of jobs and careers are competitive but of course marine science and marine biology is super competitive and every step of the way whether it's trying to get a phd or trying to get a postdoc or trying to get a grant there will be lots of competition for that opportunity But that doesn't mean that you can't succeed. And I think the way to succeed is to stay positive and stay collaborative um, and talk to people and make the most of any opportunities that may present themselves to you. And yeah, just get involved with various projects that or whatever's going on in your particular university or department or research group. Try and get involved and try and collaborate and just be positive and, and, and speak to people and realize that It is possible to succeed in marine biology. You can set up your own research group, but it will be hard. But you just need to stay, stay positive and stay determined and realize that when you get knocked back or rejection or, 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 or something happens that's not ideal, that's just part of the journey and that's part of the system. And you just need to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and go again. I mean, the number of you know, grant applications that I've had rejected over the years is insane. The number of papers that you think are the best work you've ever done and they get rejected by reviewers' comments and then the editor for a journal or whatever. You, it's not constant, but it happens a lot, this sort of level of rejection. But you can't take it personally. If you don't get that PhD or that job that you really want, it's not, it's not necessarily you. It's just that there's a lot of competition and the right opportunity will come up for you at some point. You've just got to stay positive and stay enthusiastic and keep going well thank you dan i think we're done so yeah really thank you for being on the podcast that's okay thanks for having me it's been fun i hope you enjoyed this episode with dan and that you learned a bit more about kelp forest in the uk and how important they are in general dan is a leading scientist in the field of kelp ecology and in understanding how extreme events and climate change may affect marine ecosystems. So if you're interested and want to dive deeper into this, you can have a look at some of his work that I shared in the description. Thanks again for listening and for your support. Next episode is out in two weeks. In the meantime, take care of yourself and of the ocean.